You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Hey everybody, welcome to Avoiding Real Estate Turbulence. This is your co-pilot, Tony Abate with Ross Mortgage. And this is your pilot, John Lafferty with Century 21 Town and Country. And we are your real estate pilots. Our job is to be your real estate advocate and also make sure you're educated about the buying process. We'll keep you informed throughout until we get you safely to closed. Yeah, in a real estate purchase, there are many reasons the sale can encounter turbulence. Today, we're going to discuss a few of these bumps that can occur on both the buy and sell side of a real estate sale. Yeah. So, Tony, one of the things that uh, has come up frequently that I've heard buyers bring up when they haven't bought a house before, what's the process like for sitting down with a lender, getting the ball rolling, because really that's the first important step. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I thought we might want to talk about today is the mortgage prep strategy. What are some of the things, uh, some advice we can give to buyers out there when they're they're going to get pre-approved or sit down with a lender for the first time. Sure. Yeah. And preparation is so critical with that kind of thing, John. Uh, you know, it's never too early uh, to at least start having that conversation. Uh, even if you're six, nine, 12 months out from making that home purchase, uh, having things structured and, and aligned and prepared is just going to just gonna avoid that turbulence that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, just a good rule of thumb as far as, hey, what do I need is think in terms of two, two, and two. So if a person has two pay stubs, two months of bank statements and two years of W-2s and or tax returns, that, that's a good foundation to get things rolling. And, uh, and and then from there, we have a conversation about what does the qualifying look like mathematically, but then also what does the qualifying look like to stay within the confines of that home purchaser's goals? In other words, where do they want to keep their payment at? Where do they want to keep that out-of-pocket expense at at the time of closing? Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have a buyer that um, doesn't have a paper credit. Mm -hmm. You find a couple derogatories on there. It could be a 30 or 60-day late payment within the last uh, year or two. Mm -hmm. But something that, that you flag as could be an issue, mm -hmm. do you work with those buyers to help those derogatories either get removed or is do you put a plan in place so that – Okay, you guys can't buy now, but mm -hmm. we can we can do this and we can strategize for this. Explain a little bit about that process and how what kind of advice you can give to buyers sure. who who may think, you know what, I I, I have this on my credit, I, I won't qualify anyways. I'm not going to bother to look. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, folks have uh, a variety of different conclusions about what their credit profile looks like and how that's going to impact the home purchase. The first piece of of good news that I would want to stress is that. That you don't have to have perfect credit in order to obtain a mortgage. And when I say obtain a mortgage, that doesn't mean that if your credit is less than perfect, you're going to pay some outrageous interest rate. That's not the case. Uh, but John, you bring up a, an interesting thing about what happens when we do find somebody that does have some some bumps or bruises in that credit report. Uh, one thing that a lender uh, is not is that we, we don't fall under the definition of credit repair. Uh, we can give some guidance about uh, maybe some things to do if a person thinks that there's an accuracy in a credit report, but uh, but I would really caution 
question, folks, uh, about getting into a circumstance where they're they're paying a firm money in exchange for credit repair. At the end of the day, uh, it's all about the accuracy. If if the credit report is telling the true story, it is what it is, and you have to kind of work within those confines. If we look at a credit report together with a buyer and there is outright erroneous information, then we can walk them down that path of what they need to do to get that erroneous information corrected. The good news is any consumer can do it. It's not hard and it doesn't cost you any money to, to get those, uh, those errors corrected. What does it cost you? It, time? It costs you time. Okay. Yeah, and a little effort. Yeah. But it's your credit. It's, it's a little it's worth that's it, right. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. A- so, so, you know, the other thing that I want to talk about with regard to preparation is uh, I, I think most home buyers kind of go into the process and they say, gee, I, I need to make sure my job history is accurate or, 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 or sufficient and that I'm making enough money for the mortgage. And what is that credit, uh, that credit score and credit quality looking like? And those are, those are absolutely relevant. But interestingly, when we're talking about turbulence in a transaction, um, it's the assets that go into a transaction that are that are kind of neglected in the analysis. And and here's what I mean by that. So I think anybody who's looking to purchase a home knows that they're going to need a certain amount of money to close on a transaction. And we certainly dive into that. But a lot of folks don't realize the depth in which a lender is going to look at asset statements. And from a mortgage approval standpoint, when we have to go through the process of what we call clearing conditions on a loan approval, and John, you know, we've, we've, we've had that, that conversation before with buyers. Um, a majority of them relate to the assets. And, and, and here's why. So a person's credit is what it is. A person's income is what it is. And that can be analyzed very early on. Assets are a little more dynamic. You know, we, we make deposits, we pay bills, we transfer money, and all these things come under the heavy scrutiny of the underwriter that's approving the loan. And sometimes it's a surprise. There's a mindset where folks will think, you know what, if I have the money, that's what I'm going to show the lender, and, and then we get that green light. But the reality is the lender is going to want to look very, very carefully at those asset statements. Is there money coming in that can't be properly sourced? Because you know having some skin in the game for the home purchase is, is important to the lender because then they've got, they've got a stake in the game. And, and also, too, what's the activity that's going on in, uh, you know, on that bank statement? If, if, there's a, if there's a regular payment being made and that's a payment that's not showing up on a credit report, the underwriter who approves the loan is going to want to know what's going on with that activity. How far back are you going? Two months. Two months. And so this goes back to what we said earlier, right? You know, if we have that conversation six, nine, 12 months ahead of time, then we can kind of, you know, get folks on that runway to say, all right, by the time you're ready to purchase that home, let's make sure those two months of statements that we have to look at as a lender uh, are not going to present any, well, turbulence, as we as we call it. And so no surprises, uh, no additional questions has to be asked. And, and it's manageable things. Most folks are not looking to uh, game the system, but just, just life events can cause uh, activity on a bank statement that can that can come under scrutiny with the loan approval. We talked about this in, in one of our other podcasts, but I think it's worth mentioning again within the confines of the discussion and that somebody – doesn't really put their money into a bank account mm-hmm. because they don't believe in the banking system. Yeah. So they have a sock drawer full of money mm-hmm. and they go to buy a house and are told, 
well, you've got to, you can't walk into a closing with cash. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to accept cash. You have to have that money in a bank account. Right. How long does it need to sit there and season for before it's considered good funds? Right, right, right. No, that's a good point, John. That only happens on TV where somebody shows up with that briefcase full of cash, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it goes back to the two months. Um, you know, if, if, if somebody has banked that money at home and there, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but if they've banked that money uh, at home and then they take all that money and they deposit it in February. But then we look to purchase a home in, in July or August or September. We're only going back to maybe the April and May statements. Okay. And, and that's as far as it goes. We can't go back forever uh, and analyze assets and we're not going to take it right up to the bitter end and, and, and look at someone's bank account on the day of closing. It's just a reasonable review. So if we can, if we can have that preliminary discussion about, hey, here's what we, we need to see to get you closed, and and here's how it all works, and here's some things that can create an issue on a bank statement. With the proper planning, even the folks that do bank that money at home uh, you know, can be put on a path to, to, to purchase that home, maybe at a little bit later date. FHA financing has always acknowledged that cash saved at home is acceptable, but but the bar is kind of high. It has to make sense. Uh, a, a home buyer has to be able to demonstrate, well, here's how much money I have in that sock drawer. I accumulated it over this much time because I'm making this much money per month. And oh, by the way, no, I don't have three other bank accounts where I have other activity going. You're either you're in, you're either in the banking world or you're not from a from a consumer standpoint. You can't straddle that fence. Okay, well that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. Any other strategies we should be aware of? Well, yeah, I, I think the other strategy, like I said, people often say, well, what do I qualify for? And, and, and we do analyze that and, and we answer that question. But I, I, I in part answer that question with a question that is, well, well what do you want to be qualified for? If we say somebody can qualify for a $300,000 mortgage, but their response is, you know what? I don't care what I qualify for. I don't want a payment that exceeds X per month. And X per month translates into $225,000. Then that becomes the, that's the strike, right? That's what we're going to aim for as far as a home purchase. So part of that prep is that conversation. What's going on in your budget? What's going on with your comfort level of making a payment? If if somebody has been ma- paying $1,500 a month, well, stands a reason that they're probably going to be comfortable with a $1,500 a month house payment. If they're coming out of you know living with mom and dad, that's maybe a little bit of a different uh, conversation. You know, as lenders, we're going to look at debts that appear on the credit report, but there's more to it than that. Uh, you know, what, what's going on in that person's lifestyle? If they have a hobby that just costs a lot of money, um, if they choose to donate a great deal amount to their church every week, these are things that, that, uh, are, don't, are not put into the math from a qualifying standpoint, but it is definitely valid conversation that we want to have with that person so that we get them into a mortgage that not only do they qualify for, but it fits their budget as well. Uh, from from the standpoint of what they want to spend per month, yeah, that's that makes sense. Okay, so um, one of the things that with interest rates actually going down, yeah. we uh, <laughs> we saw a big uptick in in people sort of jumping in. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a lot of showings on the listings that I had in the last uh, few weeks. Boy, uh, it's really jumped. So. From your perspective, Tony, 
what kind of low down payment options are out there for the buyer that doesn't have 20% or 10% mm-hmm. down? What type of programs are out there for them that that make sense? Sure. Uh, you know, John, there's an interesting stat, and, and I think this came from NAR, from National Association of Realtors, but, but don't quote me on that. But uh, they did a survey, and they found out that 40% of the potential buying public believes that you still have to have at least a 20% down payment. 40% of the buyers are out there thinking that. And and so you can see the dangerous conclusion uh, and somebody thinking, well, if I don't have the 20%, I'm out of the market. So they're not calling you, they're not calling me, and they continue to pay rent, which we know is a dangerous treadmill to get on. So there's a variety of things that a home buyer can look at. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that we're proud to be specialists at is, is VA loans. If a person has a, a VA eligibility, uh, either either active or, or, or prior service uh, to our country. Uh, VA loans are zero down payment if that's what the home purchaser wants uh, at, at very, very, very attractive terms. And it, that's a benefit. That's not because that's not a statement that it's a it's a less than, than strong buyer. And why are that, VA loans different from any other loan? Well, because they're, they're a benefit to the veteran uh, for those that have served our country. And they're government-backed. They're and they're the government-backed, yeah, the Only absolutely. one that's government-guaranteed. Yeah, it does have a guarantee. And and a sister program to that with this FHA, uh, 3.5% down. It's been around forever. It's nothing strange or dangerous or tricky. Uh, in a similar way to VA loans, it's insured by a government program. But first-time homebuyers can get into conventional loans for 3% down. Uh, for folks that are looking in fringe areas, uh, maybe semi-rural, suburban areas, Rural development financing is available for zero down. Um, Where, where's an example of an of a, a rural area around here in yeah. Oakland and Macomb County that you would actually be able to get a loan like that? Yeah, not not as rural as as many people think. So some some locales here um, that would be eligible for rural development financing: Washington Township, uh, Oxford Township, in my neck of the woods, Lapeer, Metamora, Brighton. Um, Ortonville, Brandon Township. These are areas that, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, they were genuine rural areas, but now they are, they're, they're, they're suburbs. They're on the fringe suburbs. Uh, you can finance condominiums with these, which most folks would not throw in the same bucket as, uh, as, uh, as, as a rural development loan. Zero down, very, very attractive interest rates. And, uh, and, and they're just there to help spur home ownership in these areas. Um, state of Michigan has uh, has what's called the bond program. It, the acronym is MISHTA for Michigan State Housing Development Authority. Seventy five hundred dollars that can be put towards a down payment and closing costs on a uh, zero interest, zero payment loan that is paid off when that homeowner ultimately sells that home. If it's thirty years, then great. So there's a lot of tools uh, that can get folks into very attractive financing uh, long before they hit that twenty percent down threshold. So what do you say to somebody who's listening right now? That's thinking in their head, here we go again. <laughs> these yeah. these GD lenders <laughs> with these low down payments. This is what got us into trouble in mm-hmm. 2007 and eight with the housing bubble. Giving these unqualified people loans because they don't have to put a lot of skin in the game. Right. Mm-hmm. What's your answer to people that are thinking those Types of thoughts. Yeah, that's a fair concern. There, there is, there is a little bit of a difference, maybe not so little, uh, as far as some of the programs that were available then versus what's available now. First off, all the programs that I just mentioned uh, are not new. They've been around a long, long, long time. And when did they have a high incidence of default? During the recession. 
not before and not now. Uh, it is a concern when a home buyer doesn't have a great deal of skin in the game. Uh, but because of that, we vet all the other things surrounding uh, uh, that person's financial world. What's the payment shock looking like from where they were paying, where they're going to pay? Uh, what is their credit profile? You know? Can I stop you for just a second? Yeah. What do you take into account with payment shock? Mm-hmm. So, What are those factors? Sure. So so there's not a hard, fast mathematical thing. And and the good thing about mortgage lending is that it is not black and white. There's, there's things that we're going to throw into a bucket that we call compensating factors. And what that means is, well, maybe somebody is, is just on the verge of a qualifying guideline, but they have some other positive aspects. Compensating factors might be something like um, having, having a nice savings balance after the closing that they could fall back on uh, relative to what you were just talking about. If somebody is, is going to have a new house payment and it's 1200 a month, and their rent for the last two years has been twelve hundred a month, and they paid it on time. That's that's considered a compensating factor. So uh, you know it, the, the programs were not the problem. It was the abuse of the programs and and the uh, and and the modification to programs. You know when we had situations going into the recession where somebody could put zero down and have a five eighty credit score. And we didn't have to validate income. That was just silly. That was careless lending. Also known as stated income, stated, stated assets. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And and you don't see that type of financing anymore. So uh, you know, we we have there, there's been government intervention uh, that's come into play where we have to now comply with what's called ATR or ability to repay rules, uh, where it's the government basically saying, "Look, lenders, you got to make sure that you have reasonable mathematical assurance that this home buyer is going to." be able to afford this mortgage. So uh, it, it's it's some appropriate regulations that came out of the recession. And and the reality is, is that when we can get responsible home buyers into homes, even at zero down, it stimulates the economy. You know, these are these are people that can contribute in a different way to uh, to to spending money within the economy. They bought an asset that is that is ideally going to increase in value, as opposed to paying rent, which, as I said earlier, is a really difficult treadmill to hop off of. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I feel the same way that the programs that are offered now and the steps that people have to go through mm-hmm. to get qualified is a long way from where we were in 03, 04, right. 05, 06, 07. Mm-hmm. Huge difference. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, – we're we're in a totally different place. Yeah, and, and yeah. So I totally believe that. Yeah, John. One thing I'll interject is a lot of these programs, conventional first time homebuyer programs, MISHTA, These homebuyers are required to take a certified homebuyer education course, and it's just what it sounds like. It's just making sure that this person has a good understanding of what the heck they're getting into, uh, that they understand how to budget, that they understand there could, there can be uh, unexpected expenses. And it has been statistically proven that the folks that take these courses have experienced lower levels of default than, than those that uh, just kind of jumped in to keep up with the Jones going into the recession. Yeah. It's, it's a good thing. It really mm-hmm. is. Let's talk about interest rates mm-hmm. and they've been fluctuating lately and and actually in the direction that benefits a buyer right. so let's talk about the impact that interest rates have on a buyer's buying power sure yeah. mm-hmm. and and uh, maybe we can give 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 somebody an idea of 
a quarter point or a half a point, how much that might affect what they qualify for. Yeah, yeah. That that always gets to be hot news when we see interest rate fluctuations and how that affects home ownership. I would step back and say that uh, you know what, it, it, it's 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 hard to find a truly poor time for somebody to buy a home if they're financially ready to do so. You get into nuances in interest rates, and uh, while that creates a lot of noise and it might be some fun math, if it's a good time, it's a good time. And I would apply the same kind of rule that a financial planner might tell somebody about investments, and that is it's dangerous to try and time the market, right? If you say, I'm only going to buy a home when I'm buying at the low, or I'm only going to finance a home when I can get that lowest rates, you just missed opportunities in, in the same fashion that somebody is trying to time the stock market. These are long haul uh, uh, investment uh, decisions that are made. But to, to, to go to your point, let me give you a couple of examples. And so we did recently see uh, interest rates drop in a pretty measurable way. You know, if we were having this conversation in January of this year, 30 year fixed rate loans hovering right around 5%. Uh, now we're in the low fours. We've seen about a three quarter percent drop in rates. So what does that mean? So if somebody takes out a $250,000 mortgage at 5%, the payment is about $1,340. At four and a, four and a quarter, twelve hundred and thirty dollars. That that's that's over thirteen hundred dollars per year in savings. Um, so it, it's meaningful. That that's real money. And if we go the other way, if somebody says, "Look, I don't want to spend more than a thousand dollars per month on the principal and interest on my loan," at five percent, that would support a mortgage of about one hundred eighty-six thousand dollars. That same thousand dollar a month payment at four and a quarter will go up to two hundred three thousand dollars. And so it's it's definitely you know pushing somebody in maybe a more favorable neighborhood. For the same amount of monthly money, it, it it absolutely goes farther now that we've seen this uh, drop in rates. And 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 again, getting back to timing the market, that's a very dangerous thing. People will say, "Hey, they're going down. Maybe I'll wait a little longer, and they'll go down even further." You know, it, that's a <laughs> it that's work a, that way. no, that's a trip to Vegas without having the free drinks. And and if you time it wrong, you miss an opportunity. And the other reality is, the home, the prices of homes are probably not going to go down. Right. And so if they wait six months, the rates might be better. They might be worse, but chances are the price of the home that they're looking for is going to be higher than it was before. Yeah, that's right. Or they have to put down more money in order to afford Mm -hmm. more. Absolutely. Well, let's piggyback off of that and talk about one of the things that that you can do. And I think it gives buyers flexibility, especially those who are putting down more of a down payment. Mm -hmm. And that's low appraisals it's yeah. it's a reality in the market it happens it's um it, it, well it it hasn't been that bad mm-hmm. lately but there seem to be periods where everybody was experiencing low appraisals on on the prices of homes and we were having to readjust on the fly values and some of the choices that we always tell buyers and sellers, okay, we have a low appraisal. Mr. Seller, you can lower your price to the new value. Oh, you don't want to do that. Okay, Mr. Buyer, you can come up with the extra money to Mm -hmm. purchase that. Oh, you don't have the money to do that. Mr. Buyer and seller, are you willing to split the difference to make everybody happy? Sometimes that's just not a reality. Mm-hmm. So one of the things in this kind of market is if a buyer really wants a home but doesn't have another – let's say the appraisal comes in 10000 short, mm-hmm. doesn't have $10,000 to put down in addition to what he's already doing, 
explain what what the one of the things that that you can do to offset that so they don't have to come out of pocket with that kind of money. Sure, sure. Well, there's a couple of things, and you know, it's all about if if uh, if a buyer is structuring their financing at certain pivotal limitations. So for instance, if somebody is putting 20% down and that appraisal comes in low, uh, and of course 20% down is a sweet spot because that's where a home purchaser avoids PMI. If that appraisal comes in low, they can still purchase the home, but then they have to make a decision, am I willing to pay that mortgage insurance to to keep the ball rolling? Um, you know, there, there's other things that can be done as far as how you structure that PMI, where it's a it's a one time expense instead of a monthly expense. I don't think most people know that it's a it's a huge tool. It's a huge tool. So let's take your scenario where neither party wants to move, and we're off by oh I don't know five thousand dollars on a two hundred thousand dollar purchase, and nobody wants to budge. Well. If somebody is going from not needing PMI to needing PMI, they could probably purchase that PMI in a lump sum for maybe between $2,500 to $3,000. And then it's just done and done. So one of the strategies can be, all right, Mr. Seller, you don't want to reduce your price. I don't want to change my down payment. I agree as a purchaser to still pay you the price that you're asking for in lieu of that low appraisal if you pay $3,000 towards my closing costs. Far better than than paying the spread on the low appraisal. And what do they do with that three thousand dollars? They pay for that one time PMI so that it, it's not in their monthly payment. So everybody comes out ahead. You know, the the, the seller didn't have to come down anywhere near as much as if they were if they were uh, you know reducing a price for a spread. Uh, the buyer does not have monthly PMI in their payment, uh, and they didn't have to make a larger down payment. So there's you got to talk to the lender. You, you gotta you gotta have that team assembled so you can put these strategies exactly. in place. Exactly, and mm-hmm. that's how you avoid turbulence Amen. in a transaction yeah. and something like that causing a deal to fall apart, yeah. which mm-hmm. does happen quite yeah. a bit when yeah. there's a low appraisal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Low, low appraisal and poor guidance, right? You know, it, because the majority of them get worked right. out, wouldn't you say? I, I, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a way to work those out. And uh, you just have to know you have a realtor and a lender on your team that can work through this turbulence. And so you come out on the other side mm-hmm. and everybody moves toward with the purchase and towards closing on it. And that's mm-hmm. uh, and if that's what everybody wants, then that's the best way moving forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's that's it for today. Wow. I feel like there's a lot more we could cover, <laughs> but we're short on time. So uh, thank you for listening to Avoiding Real Estate Turbulence. If you'd be so kind to subscribe, review, or rate us, we appreciate it. Please share it with your friends, family, coworkers, and you can find us on iTunes Store, Google Store, and SoundCloud. Thank you.